appropriate application of a pre-dip to me is that like unsung hero, so to speak, um, in preventing a lot, especially a lot of our gram negative cases and, and, and flare ups that we have. So I would say kind of across the board, germicidal dips and application, appropriate application of those both pre and post. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like AB Vista, Feed Intelligence, and Targeted Ingredients to Optimize Rumen Function. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt, Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, profitable dairy solutions. From essential vitamins like HYD and Victus Transition to next generation products like Biofix, our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the dairy industry. Visit dsm.com to learn more about our newest solutions. Welcome back to the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Barry Bradford from Michigan State University. And today I'm happy to welcome Dr. Valerie Ryman to the show. Dr. Ryman is currently an assistant professor in the Animal and Dairy Science Department at the University of Georgia. She also serves as the state dairy extension specialist there. She maintains an instruction and extension program that focuses on introducing students to animal science and agriculture, and in particular dairy cattle. With respect to her extension and applied research program, she focuses on memory health, mastitis, and milk quality with an emphasis on identifying management strategies to reduce mastitis and increase judicious use of antibiotics. Prior to joining the department at Georgia, she was a postdoc studying host pathogen interactions in an infectious disease model. Her degrees and training were from Clemson University, the University of Georgia under Dr. Steve Nickerson, and Michigan State University under Dr. Lorraine Sordillo, who were all critical to her career journey and current areas of interest. So, Dr. Ryman, with that, thank you very much for joining us today and welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, we're talking sort of a uh, third of the way into the semester, and um, I've been in your shoes, you know, teaching lots of things, keeping you busy, I'm sure. Tell me about what classes you're teaching right now. Yeah, so currently, um, my spring courses are the key course that I teach um, from a dairy perspective is lactation physiology, or it's officially physiology of lactation in farm animals. Um, so that's, I guess, the bread and butter, so to speak, of one of my classes. Um, so a great class, exciting to introduce students and talk more about, of course, the mammary gland, which is always a fun topic for all of us, I think, in the dairy world, no matter our field. So that's one of the courses. The other course that I teach both semesters, actually, is practicum in animal and dairy science. And so that's where we have largely freshmen and sophomores come into the class and introduce them to the world of agriculture. Um, so that includes in our context, at least in our department, beef cattle, dairy cattle, sheep, horses, and pigs. And, um, it's a really exciting class because we do have so many students from suburban and urban areas to introduce them to kind of that world. Um, so those are the two primary classes I teach, but I also do an orientation to animal and dairy science, 
a senior seminar in animal and dairy science, and then also a couple graduate level courses um, as well. I think that's I think that covers most of them that I, I do. Probably enough anyway, <laughs> whether that's all of it or not. You know, you can always do more, right? I suppose. I guess the only other one I didn't mention, was, which is the University of Georgia has a mission. It's called the First Year Odyssey Seminar Series, and all of our freshmen are required to take um, a seminar, ideally outside of, completely outside of their area. Um, so I do that when it's called, does um, chocolate milk come from brown cows? So oh, a little no, bit no, of <laughs> a cool title to pull students in, and I get finance students, sports exercise physiology students, and that introduces them to dairy cattle and the dairy industry. So that's that's really the most fun course I get to teach that's technically outside of the major that our department deals with. So it's really fun. Wow. Good for you. I'm curious on the practicum uh, course, um, the logistics are, are difficult. Um, so I can understand if you would do or don't, but to what extent do you guys try to get sort of hands-on or, or at least like face-to-face interactions with the animals in that Every course? week. Yeah. Every good. week we are out. So the first half of the course is largely introductory. So we talk and work with animals, basic handling, animal movement, talking about some of the senses and how they utilize those senses to interact as a herd or with us as individuals. So we are at the farm every single week for four hours each week, whether it be with any of those five animals that I talked about. So that's one of the exciting things about our major. And we have a lot of pre-vet students that we try to recruit into our department is that they get the real hands-on experience with these animals that otherwise... You know, they may get a show and tell essentially in other places and other areas of our university, unfortunately. But here they're actually getting dirty, a little bit of poop on them occasionally, some blood, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, every single week we're out with animals and interacting with them. That's neat. Yeah. I always tell students, yeah, in biology, you get to dissect the animals maybe, but we, you know, we, we let you interact with the live ones. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you noted, uh, in, in, you're obviously involved in a couple of courses specifically targeted this, but you noted that a lot of the, the students you work with, even in your major, uh, don't have an ag background today. Can you give us an update on some of the numbers? What does that look like today? Yeah, so we range anywhere in general from suburban and urban background up to 85% of our students, um, if not more in some semesters and maybe slightly less in others. Um, but definitely majority of our students are not coming from any type of agriculture background. And if they do have an agriculture background, it's largely either FFA or 4-H related. Um, still important, still brings them obviously into the world of agriculture. Um, but but largely these are, are city students that have this idea of small animal medicine largely. So I would say greater than 75 to 80 percent of our students are pre-vet intent as well with a small animal pre-vet intent. So I think that's only going to actually get more and more where we're, you know, upwards of close to 90% in our students being from a non-ag background. And we think it's our duty, in a, especially in a land-grant university, to introduce them to agriculture, even though they've been living agriculture their entire lives and don't realize it in the food they eat and the clothes they wear and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, significantly a large population of non-agricultural, classic, traditional ag students. Yeah, I think it's important to share that. And people that went through university, you know, decades ago are often shocked to hear that. Um, and it, it varies a little bit across the country, but the, the general theme is not really so different. Um, so I'm curious how you view this situation, right? So even from when you and I went through, that those numbers have shifted quite a bit, I think. Um, 
Is this a, a problem in your eyes in terms of an animal science curriculum to have such a few, you know, small proportion of students with any ag background? Yeah, so I think we would be lying to ourselves if we didn't say it was a challenge. So it is a challenge, I think, to introduce what we think of as traditional traditional agriculture to these students. Um, but I think we can be creative in talking about these hands-on opportunities and making it exciting. Um, I think more so than a challenge, though, I would actually say it's an opportunity um, and we should view it as that. I actually am not from an ag background by trade, so to speak. So I grew up in a fairly rural county in South Carolina, um, I, I maybe suburban, actually. But I had zero interaction with any type of livestock, actually. I never, quite frankly, up close and personal, saw a cow, a horse, a sheep or anything until I went to Clemson. So for me, I think it's it's something that is familiar to me and seeing these students in my eyes and how I felt the first time that I was able to experience livestock and agriculture and dairy in particular in this way. So, yeah, I think it's a challenge as we move forward that we have to be creative and not think like traditional agriculturalists in some ways that we find value in it. Um, but it's an opportunity to bring students and, and people back into agriculture um, in, in just a more unique way. Yeah, I think it, it's there's maybe one benefit of having such a high proportion of students without that background is I hope that reduces the feel that even if it's a 50-50 mix, I used to have lots of students who'd feel like, oh, I'm going to get left behind right away because I don't have that background. And when they're the vast majority, maybe they don't have that concern so much, I'd hope. Yeah, it's it's certainly something that, you know, as you teach courses, you you have to feel out right with who are your who are your farm students and and figuring out how to incorporate their viewpoints in and, and bringing that in because that's a strong kind of part of the DNA of our department. But at the same time, not leaving these students behind. Yeah, that feel like I've never done this. I've never experienced this. How am I actually supposed to get there? And so I think that's where I enjoy what I do so much because I've been there. I've been that student that yep. that doesn't see how could I ever do anything with dairy cattle? I've never been around them before. And you know, fast forward. 15 or so years or more. And, and I'm in the shoes of the people that I looked at going, you know, great for you, but I don't see it for me. Yes. So. Well, as we went through in your introduction, you definitely wear a lot of hats at the university there. And another role, uh, another big part of your role is to serve as the state's dairy extension specialist. So maybe to start with, could you sort of give us an update? What's What are the changes underway in the dairy industry in Georgia? What does the industry look like right now? Yeah, so the dairy industry in Georgia, albeit shrinking, I think, as across the country, that's the general trend that we see in, in some of our farms getting larger, the number of farms reducing. We see that same trend in Georgia. We're sitting at approximately 90 dairy farms. Um, and in the last year, our average herd size was around seven to 800. I would probably, it's safe to say that that's gone up a little bit because we're sitting at about 90 to 95,000 cows in Georgia, which is about a 10 to 15,000 cow increase even from 12 to 18 months ago. So we are seeing some very large farm expansions and we're seeing some consolidation of some of our smaller farms. But I think what's cool about Georgia is that we have a really diverse dairy industry. We have some farms that are less than 50 cows still. And you kind of what I guess what a lot of folks visualize is this traditional family farm, small number of animals coming through and you know, double four parlors, things like that, or even just pulling them up into a stanchion. And then we go all the way up to over 10,000, 20,000 across multiple operations, at least um, owned operation um, kind of conglomerates, if you will, um, for lack of a better, probably better word to use there. 
Um, so I think that's one of the signatures of the Georgia dairy industry is that it's unique and diverse. Then the other cool thing that's kind of the trend, if you will, I guess, but also in Georgia is we have, I think we're at uh, two or two robotic herds in Georgia now. I'm thinking correctly within the southeast, kind of the local aerial around up to five or so. So that's certainly a trend in Georgia, even with our smaller industry, that we're looking for ways to take the burden of labor challenges off, um, have some consistency in the way we're dealing with our cows in the milking sense. Um, We have small niche uh, farms as well that are doing on-farm processing. So we really do have a lot of everything, if you will, if you think about the entirety of what the dairy industry provides. And then the last thing that I have to throw in, of course, in Georgia is that we did surpass Florida um, as the top milk producing state in the Southeast. So of course, I say that as a University of Georgia person, but also to say that we're doing some really incredible things from a milk production and milk per cow standpoint to increase our efficiency, hopefully, you know, impact sustainability in a positive way, all those types of topics that of course, at the forefront. So it's a really exciting place to be. Yeah, there's challenges with our our size, but it's, yeah, it's a great industry. One question I had, I've, I've heard a few things about um, sort of the milk marketing and, and, you know, where milk goes. So it's traveling quite a ways now and it helped me understand it still would be a very heavily fluid milk market, I assume. Yep. Yep. So the Southeast and in particular in Georgia, we're a fluid milk market. So and we're still considered a milk deficit region. So we do have milk that still needs to come in for a per capita consumption. Um, and that is, I would say, one of the largest challenges that our producers have and where milk prices, of course, impact them is that processing capacity is is probably the single most important issue that our producers have been talking about recently. And with our plants closing, we've had multiple plants closing here over the last couple of years. Um, places to send that milk um, is critical. And so I think over the next couple of years, you know, we've got the discussion of component pricing. And is that something that's going to provide the capacity to look at this processing in a different way? Um, that's an opportunity. And uh, at the Georgia Dairy Conference last week, and I can't remember the speaker, so I apologize to the person if they're listening. But one of the points was that Georgia currently is a milk producing state, especially in the context of the Southeast. We have a lot of milk that's coming out of our state. But we also need to be a milk processing state. And that's where we're limiting right now is the ability to take what we need and process it, whether it be fluid milk products or niche products or whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's that's one of the biggest challenges is processing capabilities. So I'm sure you help address a, a broad range of challenges or, or discuss different things with dairy producers. But your core expertise is really in memory health and milk quality. So as you work with producers around the region that you're in, what are the most common challenges that you see re- regarding memory health or um, or milk quality? Yeah, so I think in interacting with them, the primary challenge, which is the age-old challenge, I guess, if you will, is consistency and labor training. So we do have really across the, the country, really, that, that change in labor and turnover and, and challenges with labor. And so maintaining a consistent um, hygienic approach to milking practices, I think, presents some of our biggest challenges, especially to our very large, well-managed dairies who do an exceptional job. It's just maintaining that training level and with our non-English speaking individuals kind of approaching that perspective to the point where we have consistency and we have those cows that are prepped appropriately 
units are going on clean teats and that we don't have, you know, those spikes in cases of clinical mastitis and elevations in somatic cell count. So I think consistency with related to that labor discussion is one of our big key issues. The other issue that I find challenging as an extension specialist is when we do have producers with issues, we have a very low population of producers now across the country that are enrolled in DHIA, which for me, I love, right, that I have the ability to look at those individual cell counts, individual cows, and be able to address some of the challenges that may be happening, whether it's in your first calf heifers or you're having some, you know, mid-lactation issues and parlor consistency and control And that's shrinking. I think we only have about 16% of our cows in Georgia represented by DHIA. And I think it's about 32-ish percent of our farms in Georgia are enrolled in DHIA. Our very large operations, for the most part, are not. Um, So for me, and I think for them too, that provides a challenge for when we do have an uh uh-oh moment in, in identifying what's the source of the problem. So I think those are some of the things that we struggle with um, to address in a lot of ways. I, I'm curious, the, those larger producers, I find that as well, um, are not wanting to to write this check, so to speak, for the, the monthly testing or even eight, eight months a year testing. Um, do you find that some of them are have sort of more advanced um, milking systems where you get conductivity or some other kind of data like that? Or do you mostly find that they just go bare bones on the uh, parlor data in general as well? Yeah, mostly would be related to parlor data and kind of hospital pen size and percentage kind of a clinical mastitis, um, incidents of clinical mastitis, things of that nature. Um, we do have some that that depend on conductivity, which to me, conductivity, unless you've you've really spent some time in ensuring that your thresholds are set and that can be a little bit tricky as well. Um, and, and again, our, our farms do fantastic. So luckily, we don't have many of those situations. But I think when those situations arise, it provides a nice opportunity to kind of throw in that discussion of investment does require a little bit of, of unfortunately, payout. But in the long run, we're able to maybe make some some better breeding decisions some better selection we can be proactive in our culling rather than reactive. So those are some of the things that um, hopefully resonate. But I understand, especially when when milk prices aren't great, that that does become a challenge to look and see, you know, where do you where do you cut where do you cut things? And I, I think inevitably that ends up being one of the things that are cut just because things are great right now. And you know, do, do we really need it? Um, yeah. Of course, bias says sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> The eggheads always want people to spend that money, right? Yeah. And to be fair, you know, if if your farm isn't actually using the data you're generating, you probably shouldn't spend the money. But, you know, we would sure. probably push them, use it. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that you kind of started to answer this question already, but maybe you have other things. Are there one or two key practices that you're really emphasizing on those herds that need to move the needle a little bit on milk quality or, or mastitis incidents? Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you go back to even the classic five-point mastitis plan from the National Mastitis Council, what developed in the 50s or 60s, um, and, and really more so on the post-it, but kind of the the germicidal dip side of things, I think that's one of the largest things that I notice that I think, especially again in our well-managed herds that have, you know, clean beds and they've got cows that are really nice and clean, appropriate application of a pre-dip to me is that like unsung hero, so to speak. 
um, in preventing a lot, especially a lot of our gram negative cases and, and, and flare ups that we have. So I would say kind of across the board, germicidal dips and application, appropriate application of those both pre and post. Um, the other trick that, you know, it's something that I probably will explore as we interact more with our, our robotic herds in the state. I'm from, a, I guess, a traditional mindset. Uh, our dips, especially our pre-dip, is a 30-second minimum, maybe 20 seconds with some of our other products. A lot of our robotic producers, um, it's it's much less than that. It's 15 seconds if we're lucky. Um, and I know that's to get, you know, increase your cows per robot and your your stall time, your box time you want to get down. Um, but those are some of the things that concern me um, with some of our robotic movements is is how are we ensuring that, yes, we want to maximize the animals that go through that robot, but are we compromising a little bit of our mammary quality, mammary health by not kind of, again, adhering to those age old traditions of 30 seconds at the very least, 20 seconds and, and those types of things. Our cell counts on our operations that have robots here in Georgia and even in the surrounding states are great. So it's not that they're failing by any means. They're in par, if not better than, you know, some of our large operations that are doing all of those things and have individual cell counts. But I find that it could be scary and a challenge and risky um, to not have that, especially in some of our pathogens, maybe that need a little bit more of a kick to to, to them. So what's what's been interesting to me is um, I didn't know that I had strong feelings on whether robots would improve or harm memory health but i i kind of assumed it would like normalize farms so if your robotic farms would have pretty similar that's not what i see i mean it's all it's at least is is all over the map as um conventional milk herds which is interesting to me yeah i think it's advantageous in that it provides an increased level of consistency in in preparation of the glands um but that's if you have the cows that are cooperating appropriately. That's if you've trained those animals to come in. That's if you have, you know, your your bars set up appropriately to push them back far enough. And I think it, I think they're great. But I think they also, as we move forward here over the next, you know, whatever it be, five to ten to fifteen to twenty years in the trends, um, what that looks like. And the other point that I would throw in, and I there's one producer in the state that we have arguments about this that I'm a huge proponent of force stripping. Um, milk and, and in particular force stripping prior to pre-dipping. So I'm of that mindset that if we force strip after pre-dipping, we risk really removing a lot of that pre-dip and compromising our time on teat. We have a lot of operations, especially that are using, so robots would be one of them. If those um, herds are using the wands that have the rotating brushes and we're prepping that way without an advanced uh, force stripping step, I think force stripping is also one of the unsung heroes of obviously identification of clinical mastitis. So being able to address that, but also if we do have some bacterial issues, high spatic cell count, even in certain of our tanks that animals that come in, being able to flush all of that out and promote some additional milk letdown stimulation. I think force stripping is really something that that I know is a hard concept um, to talk about when we're talking again about animals coming in and getting them milked as quickly as we can from a mammary perspective. Um, it's it's something that I really talk with my producers about and and try to encourage and show them the data that says, even though you're going to spend some time, you may actually see higher flow rates, faster cows milked out, 
and maybe even more cows, a higher throughput. So more turns per hour, um, depending on the animals and depending on the prep work. So that's probably the other one that I would slide in there is for stripping is is golden. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. I, I can envision some of those conversations. Um, and, you know, you, you can kind of pitch, you know, if you don't, if you get better letdown, you know, the time in the parlor might not actually be greater, you know, with force stripping and things like that. Um, do you get to the point, have you gotten to the point with some farms where they're like, okay, well, we'll, you know, we'll try this for a few weeks and we'll actually do an assessment of whether we're getting cows through well enough. Have you, or how do you try to pitch this, I guess? Yeah, I mean, exactly that way. Cause our, our producers are, um, very intuitive in that I say, Hey, let's, let's try this. Just, so I had one producer that I wanted him to, to, to just flip flop, do your, your force stripping and then your pre-dipping, just flip that step. And in my mind, you know, we have tunnel vision, right? In our field of expertise that it's, it's simple. You just flip it. But again, when you're dealing with consistency in the parlor and, and just general drift in procedures, I understand how that could be something that goes, we can't even get it right half the time to begin with. And you're asking us down to flip it. And his kind of comeback to me was, well, how long is it going to take me to see a difference? And it took me a second to sit there and go, I mean, that, that's a great question because you have fantastic somatic cell counts. Now you have, and I think I came back to him and said, you know, why don't you just give me a couple months? Just try it for a couple months and then we'll sit down and we'll just crunch some numbers. Um, and he, knock on wood to this day, has flipped those steps and I think is is happy with that flip. And he still, you know, has occasionally some challenges in his animals, but that was, I think, you know, young, maybe naive coming out of just flip these, you know, just, just flip them. And he's like, well, how long is it going to take me for you for, to prove to me that this works? Well, you know, touche. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's exactly your point of, I want you to change something and this is how we're going to know it's going to work and how long I just need you to hang on for me to prove to you that I promise it's effective. And sometimes it works by showing them the data up front. Um, sometimes that does work to come in and say, okay, here's what we know over 20 years of research or the most recent study says X. And then again, sometimes they just, well, I want to prove it on my farm. I don't care that they did it in Wisconsin or New York or California. I want you to prove it on my farm in my conditions. And and I can respect that with everything they have to manage to begin with. Okay. Can you fill me in a little bit on one key area of research in your program right now? What are you focusing on for your research side of your portfolio? Yeah. So in my program, that's uh, very applied research, just given the um, teaching and extension that I do, it's um, fun to squeeze in these types of things. But generally what my focus is, is trying to identify strategies, management strategies that we can more specifically select animals for treatment. So lactating cow therapy has been what my previous graduate student worked on um, and looking at somatic cell counts, because we know in the literature that somatic cell counts being elevated, the higher the somatic cell count, the lower the chance of cure. So we know that is just kind of a retroactive, retrospective principle. Um, but to me, if we can utilize that knowledge a little bit more specifically to at least provide some data for farmers to say, okay, if you're over X cell count, maybe even in the context of this particular pathogen, your chances of cure are X. In a perfect world, could we find a threshold value that says don't treat if you're over this? Well, sure, that would be perfect. The diversity in our immune responses, the diversity in pathogens, is that possible? 
Well, probably not. That's what our data and, of course, previous data shows. But if we can at least provide some more information to producers to say, here's your chances, I think that just empowers them more to make informed decisions, along with on-farm culture, kind of promoting that, just giving them the power to make more informed decisions rather than, I'm going to try this product short duration and hope it works, Um, that sort of thing. So that's the key area that I'm primarily focused on. Um, I'm dabbling a little bit in the second portion of my uh, graduate student's project was in the microbiome of the milk. So I am investigating that. And I think that's kind of one of those black boxes, I feel like, that is an industry we're tiptoeing into, especially into the rumen. Um, the milk and the mammary gland is a whole other beast and conversation in and of itself. Um, but all with the idea of identifying the best environment for success of that gland and, in theory, tolerance or resistance against mastitis-causing pathogens is kind of the thought. Right. I've got a couple questions. So one on the idea of using somatic cells as a factor in determining a treatment protocol. Um, I've been a little bit interested, but haven't spent much time on the the new tools for looking at differentials in somatic cells. So both the some of the milk analysis labs now are equipped with that, and then you can actually buy instruments that can do it on farm. Do you see merit to some of those approaches, or do we not know enough yet? Um, so I think the first thing is I, I think I see merit, but I also don't think we know enough. And it's, it's interesting that you asked that because I have a commodity grant funded to just do kind of a small pilot study to begin looking at that. Can you explain what, what that is? Differentials? Yes. Sorry. Yeah. So in general, and it depends on um, the piece of equipment that's utilized, the laboratory method that's utilized. In general, differential somatic cell count is the proportions of the white blood cells in particular that are in that. So somatic cells in general is, ge- is going to be compromised of white blood cells and then a small proportion of milks producing epithelial cells that have sloughed off or have, have died, whatever. Um, 5% or less probably of that somatic cell count is going to be that. So predominantly, our somatic cells are going to be white blood cells, generally elevated during infection, because that's the signature inflammatory piece of trying to kill that bacteria that's come in. Um, Within that, we have three cell types in that somatic cell count that generally we look at in the context of differentials. So neutrophils, which we think of as our, our killers, they are the ones that we want to come in, kill fast, eliminate the bacteria or pathogen, and let's go back to doing normal things. Macrophages generally are more predominant in a healthy mammary gland. They survey all the mammary gland and identify any challenges, infections, bacteria, whatever. And then lymphocytes being our kind of our memory response cells, if you will, that tend to be pretty low, albeit in mammary. And healthy mammary glands could be a little bit higher of a population. So in the context of differential somatic cell count, the theory or the thought is, which makes sense, that if we have a higher proportion in particular of neutrophils, that indicates to us that there is, in theory, an active infection going on or, or a bacterial presence, microbial presence in that gland. Um, so I think there's merit there in the context, especially of subclinical mastitis and maybe kind of digging through that um, so we don't have the influence of clots and flakes and all those conversations with clinical But also from a selective dry cow therapy standpoint, that especially some of the on-farm systems that are available utilizing that principle, so the differential somatic cell count principle, 
maybe in combination with on-farm culture. So we have two levels of checks and balances, so to speak, to make our decisions um, moving forward. So that's that's kind of where my brain is at in, in the differential field right now is could we utilize that more specifically for our decisions with subclinical and selective dry cow? And there's been some papers that have explored that in various ways. So it's certainly, a, I think, a topic of interest in the mammary health world um, and figuring out a, a cost-effective economical way to incorporate it into our decision-making. And then on the microbiome real quick, um, I guess the controversy, as I understand it, is um, is it normal, healthy, uh, common that there are commensal non-pathogenic bacteria that reside, I guess, in the like the teat cistern and even further up in the gland? Yes. So um, there, there are a lot of facets to the mammary and milk. And even that, I think, is under discussion, right? Is it the mammary microbiome? If it exists, is it the milk microbiome? Then yes, you, we, I would say as an industry, and maybe some would disagree with me and that, I think this is why it's kind of a cool black box, so to speak, to have these discussions. I think most of us are pretty certain there's a teat canal population, right? That so close to the exterior, whether those be environmental pathogens in addition to, of course, skin bacteria like our CNSs or our non-ARIA staffs that exist, sure, to some degree, of course. Um, I think when we go farther up, especially into the alveolar tissue and, and the even the gland cistern, perhaps, is that do we expect to have a population there? My argument would be, I think so, yes, because it, the mammary gland is a modified skin gland. So there is external exposure and certainly um, the chance for there to be a population of either skin or external bacteria that aren't, you know, your E. coli's and those opportunistic pathogens that exist. I think we have a lot of challenges, though, in addressing those questions, which is some of the things that we've tried to start asking ourselves. Do we, to your point, do we need to be looking at cisternal, you know, aspirations, so to speak, cisternal pulls of that milk and, and ask those questions rather than expressing milk through the teat canal and getting that I don't want to say contamination, but that population, are those two distinct groups? And, and probably I would think so. In our um, DNA extractions and processing of our samples, there's high risk for contamination, especially if we're doing those types of processings in the same area and context as some of our rumen samples or fecal samples or just all the things that we explore in cattle. Um, so I think there's a lot of areas that we need to, if we continue exploring this, and I think we will, um, clean up and ensure that we don't have these external extenuating factors skewing our results. There was a great paper published, um, and I can't remember exactly how long ago, but looking at essentially processing, so collecting two sets of milk samples um, the exact same way and then processing them differently at different times. So the exact same processing methods and getting two very different results in the context of predominant phyla, predominant genera, exactly save the same samples, exactly the same way. And the theory was that probably got contamination during collections from external sources, environmental sources. You've probably got contamination when you're processing these samples. And what all do we need to do to answer some of these questions so that we can confidently say, yes, there is a population that represents a healthy mammary gland. Um, and this is what we want to support to protect the mammary gland from 
opportunistic pathogens from some of our more dangerous skin, staph aureus, things like that. So I think there is one. I think we've got to do a lot more to confidently support that. That makes sense. Yeah. It's such a difficult technical challenge. Of course, I'm used to working with the GI tract, right? And so when you have got astronomical numbers of bacteria, like we would laugh about worrying about contamination from your skin. Like, okay, yeah, you might yeah. add 0.1% to the bacteria in the sample. It's not going to matter. But when Absolutely. you have something that has, a, you know, if if you agree there's a population, I think everyone agrees it's very, very low abundance compared to like the GI tract, right? So now yeah. a couple skin cells all of a sudden could be a meaningful, you know, Sure. Um, shift in, in what you find. So it makes it very challenging. Yeah. And one of my graduate students, first papers from that, we were comparing. So we um, collected rumen, fecal, and milk samples from, I think it was 51 cows, if I remember correctly. And we analyzed them across the board. So looking at, you know, the, the different, so the beta diversity, so just differences in overall populations, and then the alpha diversity, so differences within each of those populations. Um, and really, the one of the there were a lot of exciting things that we found, but one of the key takeaways, which I think supports the fact that we have a microbiome there that's not entirely dependent on contamination, is that from the beta diversity standpoint, so looking at these populations separately, they were all distinct from one another. Okay. Did we find yeah. some phyla and genera that were in the milk that were also in these other two fecal and rumen? Sure, of course we did. Not that, that you know, provides a little bit of support to, did we get contamination? But I think having significantly different levels of diversity, I think provides a little bit more credence to the fact that we have a population that is different and figuring out what the, you know, the core commensal microbiome is, it could provide some really cool information and in whether that's genetically associated, if we're able to eventually determine that solely dependent on the environment that they're raised in, from calf and hefferhood all the way up to lactation? Maybe. I think that's why it's kind of a cool area that there's a lot of questions that are completely unknown. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're working on it. I'll be curious to see what, what comes out in the next five years. Yeah. It's time for our famous three. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Exelite by Protecta a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. When it comes to raising healthy animals, you need more than the right solutions. You need the right partner who brings decades of industry expertise and a global team to put that knowledge to work for the advancement of your operation. At Fibro Animal Health Corporation, we are proud to work with you as your trusted partner. Okay, we're getting to that time where we have to throw our three standard questions at you. It's always interesting to see what people say. So first of all, what's your favorite dairy-related book or resource? So I think um, it's probably Lactation in the Mammary Gland by Mike Akers, Dr. Akers. So I think that's a fantastic book that I, of course, I utilize in my um, lactation physiology course. And then, of course, bring in some of the newer material that's been updated since then. But still a great book to really explore the endocrinology of lactation and development. Um, so I would say probably, probably that one. Okay. 
What about your favorite book or resource outside of ag? Oh gosh. Um, so are we talking are we talking educational or just anything under the sun? It could be a comic book, you know, whatever. I, well, this might age me a little bit, but I, I like to always give my students a, a nerd or a unique fact about me. Maybe it's not so unique, but um, I grew up in the time of Harry Potter. So again, it's probably aging me me down a little bit. Maybe I'm trying to stay young with my students. I don't know, but um, I I am a Harry Potter lover. And timeless. <laughs> I'm with you. Good to see you. <laughs> All right. And then in your opinion, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those that are less successful? Gosh, I think passion. Mm-hmm. I think just having a level of passion and, and loving what you do, even in the face of challenges, um, which like we talked about in the Southeast, dairy is a challenge. It is something that is continually a changing environment and figuring out ways to be successful um, in the context of labor and, and milk prices and heat stress. So not even bringing that up, but that's an important piece, too. But I think if we have the passion to figure out how to make things successful and make things work and ask really novel, curious questions um, that at some level, albeit incremental and small, maybe in a, in a 30-year career, I think that's what makes, whether it be a farmer or myself or any of us successful. Great answer. Thank you. Yeah, yeah sure. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Valerie Ryman, thank you again for joining us on the Dairy Podcast Show. I very much enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, this was fantastic. I, I appreciate it. And I certainly say to you know whoever listens in that if, if you want to have these kind of conversations, they're fun to have, please reach out. I'm, I'm happy to have them and, and explore some questions so, or maybe some disagreements that, that, yeah, that you want to argue with me on because hopefully that just spurs some new questions that we can answer things more. Sure. That's um, how you educated. learn new things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you listeners for joining us for another episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. If you haven't subscribed yet, please click that button and make sure you don't miss the next great content. Take care.